We are live on the World Wide Web. This is uh, the third class of Money, Culture, and Globalization. My name is Anthony Hall, and uh, I'm uh, going solo tonight. We're not going to uh, hook up it with a video conference uh, this evening. Uh, we'll be doing a lot uh, surfing around on the web, which is, hello, James. James Moore. James Moore is uh, working on the interactive dimension of, uh, of our work here. Uh, James has a master's in distance education from Athabasca, and uh, he's been working on the uh, chat line that takes place in real time during the, during the class. So this evening I'll be continuing to uh, work on this question, uh, what is truth? And obviously I'll be continuing to tie in the subject of money, culture, and globalization to different uh, ways we can think about truth. Uh, we'll be going fairly early on into uh, the, um, the, the complex of websites that have become known as the 9-11 Truth Movement. And the 9-11 Truth Movement, uh, well, it takes on a very uh, powerful label. It asserts itself uh, rather boldly. Uh, and... Uh, I think it really uh, gets to the reality that there are different, uh, very different interpretations of the world developing in different media. The media that uh, is the mass media, television, commercial newspapers, there's a view of the world in that milieu and a quite different uh, view of the world developing in some uh, quarters of the Internet. So uh, the site, we've got some developments on the site, on the website, globalizationstudies.org. Um, let me uh, blow this up. Um, this is a cluster map of uh, the hits since September the 3rd. And uh, we're not getting a mass of hits. But I do find it interesting that we're getting as many hits now in uh, Europe, especially in Scandinavia, right through into Russia. Here's a, a sole uh, hit from uh, the west coast of uh, Africa. And uh, there's a bit of action in India. And uh, it seems that uh, I would guess this would be Seoul, Korea. I would guess this would be London. I would guess this would be Paris. I would guess this would be Toronto and New York. And here we are in uh, Lethbridge here. Um, a very little bit uh, going on in, in South America. But it is interesting to uh, have this evidence that, in fact, we are uh, connecting in this room uh, since September 3rd since the beginning of this course with people in different parts of the world. And, of course, the, the trick is going to be to draw them into the discussion, and if, if possible, and, 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 and have some uh, real um, interactivity with them. So, uh, here is a discussion or a little announcement of uh, 
the 9-11 truth movement. We'll uh, use um, the Google uh, video site. And uh, there's about 100 um, documentaries now on um, what happened in 9-11. And they're of all different uh, qualities and all different perspectives. The 9-11 truth movement uh, is uh, becoming a very um, diverse uh, realm. Uh, there's all kinds of theories about what really happened on 9-11. The one thing that unifies uh, most in the 9-11 truth movement is that they don't believe uh, that the official version of events is, uh, is the correct version. So I'm just uh, running through uh, each one of these, of course, is a, is, a, is a documentary. And most of them are here. This one is two hours and five minutes, uh, two hours and 24 minutes, one hour and 26 minutes, one hour. Uh, so these are uh, substantial um, productions, and uh, you know, it's very interesting that you have this amount of uh, human energy going in to demonstrate that an official version of possibly the most important event. Is there any event that compares with the impact of that event in the early years of the 21st century? I mean, is there any event that has affected so many um, individuals on the planet and, and affects us uh, not only in our actions, but you know, in the in the depths of our psychology, in uh, in the way we are uh, encouraged or expect to relate to our fellow human beings on the planet. So that's uh, where we'll be uh, headed. Um, I uh, did uh, a new thing. I prepared a an essay on last week's lecture. So it's a uh, fairly, um, I'd like to think, substantial essay. Uh, I appreciate that I'm uh, connecting uh, a lot of uh, subjects over a vast range of history and uh, ideology and geography, just to mention some of the categories of, 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 of disparity, of diversity. So uh, uh, I set it as a kind of task for myself to uh, uh, put it down in, in writing. Um, and as I was going through, it occurred to me um, to um, be explicit about some of the links. I've never actually written an essay like that, like this before, where, uh, in a sense, I footnote uh, different sources on the internet as I'm going through. Um, but I, I thought I would uh, begin uh, with a, a little exploration of uh, this text and of the sites that I've chosen uh, to connect to this text, and in drawing attention to these different sites, this is this is my uh, uh, experimenting with Google and using different terms. Uh, but uh, I want you to get used to uh, doing that yourself, experimenting with Google, combining different terms, uh, 
so in this class, I explored the idea of truth and its relationship to conceptions such as culture, religion, relativism, absolutism, science, reason, law, and faith. Is it possible to identify universal truth whose validity is universally self-evident to most human beings? Or does the channeling of human perception through the lens of different cultures, religions, and languages impede the possibility of recognizing common truth that extends throughout the entire human family to all life forms and even to the very frontiers of the known universe? Is it necessary to identify universal conceptions of truth in order to justify, for instance, uh, strategic instruments of international law such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as it emerged from the United Nations in 1948. And then there's a link to, uh, to uh, the actual wording of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human, life, human Rights. So you'll recall that uh, I talked about the uh, theory of relativity. Um, Einstein's theory of relativity, the special theory in 1905, the general theory in 1915. And uh, as I see that work and, and so much of the important um, uh, new discoveries uh, coming from humanity have come out of physics. Physics seems to be the discipline that is most expansive, that tries to incorporate pretty well everything. And, of course, it's the physicists who are looking for a universal law that describes how the universe works. Um, so that certainly was, was uh, Einstein's uh, project. And I, the more I think about this, I think you could imagine the theory of relativity essentially taking the idea of time and just smashing it like a mirror. Suddenly, something that was so uh, central to our perceptions was, in an abstract way, smashed. Uh, you know, I think of those uh, giant clocks. If you do a history of time, the building in uh, the central squares in Europe of giant clocks, and then the invention of standard time. A Canadian by the name of Sir Sanford Fleming uh, had a lot to do with it. Sir Sanford Fleming had a lot to do with building the Canadian railways and the cross uh oceanic cables. And as you start to develop these massive systems of communication, you've got to have a standard system of time to organize the whole, uh, the whole train system. And, and so uh, just as uh, out of Europe, out of North America, this system of standard time was established, suddenly along comes Einstein and says, no, time actually goes at different speeds in relationship to the speed of light. And so as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. And so this idea that there is a now, that this now is all over the universe, it doesn't seem that it, it is that way. Uh, if it's not that way, what is it? How do, how do we imagine this? So I, I see this uh, theory of relativity as a beginning, in a sense, the central crisis of the 20th century, along comes Franz Boas. And uh, Franz Boas is taken as one of the main founders of, uh, of uh, anthropology. Here's a, a little description of Franz Boas. 
Uh, he worked on the west coast of Canada among Guacutal. Uh He uh, called into question the Darwinian view of evolution. Uh, he introduced the idea of uh, culture and cultural relativism, the very concept of culture. One of his students was Ruth Benedict. She came up with a book, if I can go to the document camera, there it is, uh, Patterns of Culture uh, in, the, in the 1930s. So, uh, but by, by the early 20th century, um, uh, Boaz is, is saying, no, we can't organize all of humanity according to one grid and say this group is Stone Age, this group is primitive, this group is barbaric, this group is civilized, this group is high civilization. You can't uh, uh, do it that way. Here, here is a, a, a very brief... Uh, uh, the ladder of cultural evolution, so it goes into the Darwinists, the Lewis Henry Morgan, his book Ancient Society, was very influential with Karl Marx, with uh, with um, Frederick Engels, and uh, then we go through the the different uh, the, this Darwinist evolutionary theory can come become very racist, and in fact uh, you start to get the view that different uh, human races are like different species, and some uh, lower races just cannot be improved have liberals coming along saying, oh, no, no, all human beings have a capacity for education, have a capacity for higher learning, so we should spend money on, like, the Indian boarding schools. I mean, in a certain sense, the Indian boarding schools, which now look like, you know, very um, grotesque in terms of the idea that you're going to train young Indians to, in a sense, despise their inherited culture, to accept the inferiority of their inherited culture to uh, move into higher levels of civilization by you know, learning literacy, learning the great texts, learning crafts and trades. As, uh, as tough as that might appear, in a certain sense it also represented a faith in the malleability of human beings. And so it was, in a sense, a more liberal approach than outright racists who said, doesn't matter how much education you, you give Indians or blacks, uh, they're just never going to uh, join, you know, the advanced civilized people. So, um, so Herbert Spencer. So here you see Franz Boas, <coughs> Margaret Mead. So there was a whole group of uh, Franz Boas's students. He was a very uh, energetic graduate instructor at Columbia University. Um, he also um, oversaw the uh, Aboriginal village in the World's Columbian Exposition. I make a great deal of what happened in Chicago in 1893. Uh, when uh, the 400th anniversary of Columbus was being uh, celebrated, Columbus's uh, discovery, quote-unquote, discovery of America. But Margaret is looking back at her, at her mentor, at her professor, and trying to sum up what uh, the Boazians stood for. We, we stood out against any grading of cultures in hierarchical systems 
which would place our own culture at the top and place the other cultures of the world in a descending scale according to the extent that they differ from ours. We set out for a sort of democracy of cultures, a concept which would naturally take its place beside the other great democratic uh, beliefs. Certainly, uh, uh, Bruce Benedict was a very important figure uh, in the U.S. propaganda uh, during World War II. Uh, the need to stand up to Nazi propaganda and Nazi ideology, which was premised entirely on the idea of a hierarchy of races, uh, was premised entirely on uh, the social science of eugenics and the idea that uh, humanity should be cleansed of contaminating influences and contaminating uh, gene strains. You know, this resulted in one of the horrible uh, tragedies, uh, the event known as the Holocaust, when uh, Jews were singled out as uh, needing to be cleansed, you know, done away with, uh, genocide was a word to describe, was invented at that in 1944 to describe that process. But there was also a sense that Slavs were inferior peoples, that Slavs' uh, destiny was to be, in a sense, slaves to the master race people. Uh, gypsies were a uh, great subject of... Uh, uh, Nazi persecution, um, and also homosexuals. I see a fellow walking around town with a, a pink star. He pins a pink star to himself, and that is a powerful sim symbol because Jews wore yellow stars. Gays wore pink stars. You know the word fag comes from when homosexuals were burned at the stake, and so they became fags when they were burned. So that's another uh, another uh, huge story of of, uh, of persecution. In any case, uh, I'm I'm in a sense doing a uh, a uh, a review of uh, what we talked about last week, uh, and now I've got a text to go with it. I connected the explosion of ideas about relativity in the 20th century with evolving notions of liberalism. Generally speaking, liberals became comfortable with the idea that different societies could develop different understandings of truth. Each understanding could be respected for having a degree of internal coherence, even if the different understandings of culturally distinct groups seemingly contradicted So this group has this view of truth, this other group has another view of truth, the liberal mentality, I would suggest, kind of gets comfortable with that, kind of comes to accept that it doesn't all have to make sense, that you don't have to decide all the time who has the right story or the best version. Uh, <clears throat> liberals could thus be flexible and accommodating concurrently a wide range of cultures with a wide range of explanations about how truth is constructed. While some might equate this liberal proclivity with tolerance, others might see it as a sign of amorality or even decadence. The openness of liberals and relativists to multiple explanations of truth created a backlash among absolutists or fundamentalists. And I think we can see that 
tension and it's very central to the, the world situation today. In many cases, the most extreme absolutists have been very committed adherents of religion, but especially the monotheistic religions. It seems that uh, monotheism, the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all going back to Abraham. Uh, once you take the view that there is one God for all of humanity, and those who don't adhere to that God are in fact mistaken because they just haven't yet had an opportunity to have access to that. There is within that uh, obviously a sort of illiberal uh, approach. Um, not to say that uh, there are not many Islamic people, Christian people, Jewish people who are not very cutting-edge liberals. And, and there can be within these different monotheistic religions a uh, whole range of, uh, of uh, a spectrum of, of different positions. Uh, nevertheless, if, if, you're, if, you, if you're very uh, intense about uh, your monotheism, it, it, it is difficult to accommodate the idea that there may be others who see it differently and uh, to accommodate that their point of view may have comparable base, even if it seems to contradict your own. In many cases, the most extreme absolutists have been very committed adherents of religion, but especially monotheistic religions. Often, often citing sacred texts such as the Bible or the Koran, the absolutist charge that relativism lies at the top of a slippery slope leading to absolute nihilism. In a milieu where multiple truths can, be, uh, can all be accepted simultaneously, isn't it possible that sacredness is robbed from everything, that anything goes? Uh, I looked at a number of uh, different uh, possibilities here. And uh, I thought it might be interesting to uh, look at a Baha'i site. So, um, fundamentalism and liberal, liberalism towards an understanding of the dichotomy. Um, Baha'i attempts to take, attempts to incorporate all religions in a sense. And the Baha'is are very um, intent on a kind of one world vision that somehow all of humanity uh, is coming together. Um, um, but, uh, you know, put in absolutism and relativism, put in fundamentalism and liberalism, and you'll, you'll, you'll get a great uh, range of choices. Uh, I suggest that absolutism or fundamentalism need not be limited to religion. There can, for instance, be communist or capitalist absolutists. I don't know if uh, some of you have ever met very, very committed communists who are uh, all very doctrinaire that everything has to do with class, uh, class relationships, that all society is based in a sense on uh, theft uh, from the working class by the capitalist class, that, um, uh, that there's only one uh, route towards progress, which is a revolutionary overthrow of the dominant class, that government is simply a, a delivery system to serve the uh, interests and uh, and proprietary rights of the of, of of the dominant capitalist class, and I would suggest that there can be a kind of market fundamentalism that emphasizes a particular model of commercial relationships, as if that model represents an ultimate expression of a higher natural law. So I think in business school, uh, 
in uh, certain areas of management, uh, you can get very, uh, very strong adherents uh, who treat, for instance, Adam Smith in his book in 1776, like the wealth of nations, almost like it's some kind of uh, unalterable religious principle that the market represents the, the maximum domain of human freedom, that any intervention in the free workings of markets represents some kind of uh, uh, wrongful intervention in human relationships, that uh, the pricing mechanism, that supply and demand, that all of this is a kind of expression of natural law and that uh, capitalism is, in, 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 in fact, uh, an expression of, of natural law. So uh, I'm suggesting that absolutism, as a response to relativism, that absolutism can have a secular base as well as a religious base. But once it is a real fundamentalism, it almost takes on a religious, uh, a sense of religious fervor. Um, and it is interesting in, in the United States during the Cold War, when uh, the enemy for a couple of generations was the communists, were the atheistic communists. And that became uh, very uh, central to the U.S. position that uh, the atheism of communism was, a, was an expression of its, of its decadence, of its uh, awkwardness, of its inhumanity. So uh, on the American money, uh, you get the phrase, in God we trust. Uh, and uh, the concept of uh, ownership of property and the exchange of property in free markets almost takes on a kind of sense of, uh, this, is, this is part of a religion. This, this is uh, part of the response to godless communism. So I've attempted to place the tension between relativism and absolutism in the context of history. In the 18th century in Europe, the proponents of a scientific inquiry such as Voltaire and the encyclopedist Diderot were often opposed by agents of organized religion. Uh, Voltaire and Diderot and Rousseau and uh, La Hontan and others uh, are um, often known as um, philosophers the contest between the secular rationalism of the philosophes and the conservatism of the custodians of religious orthodoxy unfolded during an era sometimes labeled as the century of enlightenment, the 1700s, the 18th century. The era of enlightenment was a time when the idea of human equality and universal human rights began to challenge the old ideas supporting monarchy, aristocracy, slavery, and the oppression of women. So this concept that every human being has an equal right to dignity to express himself or herself through the ballot box, to express uh, political will through, through democratic systems. Uh, this was part of the American Revolution of 1776 and the French Revolution of 1779. These were essential outgrowths of many of the ideas that characterized the century of enlightenment. The struggle to emphasize empirical proof and human reason over the orthodoxy of religion was essential to the development of the scientific method. And this is a, this is a neat little uh, 
discussion here of uh, the European Enlightenment and the philosophs. And uh, so this uh, author here has seen philosophs as being connected to the idea of progress. Deism. Deism, deism is a term coined in the philosophic movement and applies in two related ideas. A, relig a religion should be reasonable and should consult in the highest moral behavior of its adherents. And the knowledge of the natural world and the human world has nothing to do whatsoever with religion and should be approached completely free from religious ideas or convictions. So this idea of hiving off human rationality from, from religion, this was a very... Uh, there was a great deal of contentiousness around this. Uh, he associates, you know, here's this idea of tolerance. Um, uh, and uh, there is uh, Dennis Diderot's Encyclopedia. Um, so, Candide... It, it, uh, Diderot was a prolific writer on just about every topic and in just about every format. He wrote in philosophy, science, music, and art, and wrote novels, essays, and dramatic pieces. And uh, I, I'm not sure if he invented the idea of the encyclopedia, but the first encyclopedia, the French language encyclopedia, this was a, a very major effort to uh, define knowledge, uh, knowledge that you could discern through your reason, through your judgment, through your intellect, through empirical evidence and uh, put aside the idea that truth and meaning comes from the revelation of God. And so many of the uh, philosophers were, continued to be Christian uh, and they worked out ways to uh, make, this, uh, make this duality. However, I have seen accounts where uh, in the 18th century, some of these secular philosophers, when they died, of course, when you die, there is a great temptation, I suppose, to imagine yourself going to heaven or hope that some kind of merciful Lord is, is present. And I've seen writing where uh, it's almost like he did it, you know, right to the end. He, he kept his uh, secular sensibility and didn't uh, cry out, in a moment of pain or agony for some uh, distant god. So this tension between secularism and religion, uh, it, it is surely, uh, you know, continues to be uh, a great tension in our own time. And in fact, perhaps is, is uh, as, as, uh, as real today as uh, during the 18th century in some ways. <clears throat> German philosophers, Social agitation, uh, a very, uh, very well put put together <coughs> little site. Uh, the growing marriage between scientific inquiry and technological innovation dramatically altered relationships of power over broad areas of the earth. I mean, the secular enlightenment, pumping up science, giving science new capacities, uh, enabled navigators to. Uh, create maps, to keep track of where they were on the earth. Uh, it all had to do with being able to calculate the movement of stars, the celestial bodies. Um, and um, so it did represent, uh, you know, a technological, uh, a number of technological breakthroughs. 
And then uh, it doesn't stop with navigation. Um, Einstein's contention that the passage of time could be altered and that space could be compressed or bent. Uh, these innovations in, for instance, navigation, railway technology, air travel, and the electronic communications by telegraph, telephone, radio, television, satellite, and now, of course, the Internet, have all dramatically altered human relationships to time and space. To repeat this changing matrix of human relationships through accelerating rates of communicative interactivity form key elements of the com complex of processes that constitute globalization. And the more I think about it, the more the, this moving technology, uh, these communications breakthroughs that enable us to uh, pass messages back and forth or move ourselves back and forth uh, over longer distances in quicker periods of time, it almost seems to alter time and space. So this, this fracturing of time and space, in fact, um, you know, it, we, we can see it in our own experience. I think I mentioned you know, going from snail mail to email and what that meant. I, I certainly, for three years, just standing here and, and doing this and you know, clicking on that cluster map and looking at the map of the world and, you know, the consciousness that all of us in this space here, we're in a geographic space, but we're in some other kind of cyberspace, some other kind of extension of our nervous system, of our, of our consciousness. Um, and uh, this is not an ab abstraction. We're actually in this place right here, right now. Um, uh, so... Um, this particular, uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy um, talks about uh, in new information technologies. Uh, this uh, particular uh, definition of globalization uh, emphasized some of those uh, spatial and temporal uh, changes. Theorists of globalization disagree about the precise source of recent shifts in the spatial and temporal contours of human life. Nonetheless, they generally agree that alterations in humanity's experiences of space and time are working to undermine the importance of local and even national boundaries in many arenas of human endeavor. Um, so much of the rest of the class was spent testing and applying these conceptions of truth to methodology methodologies of uh, research, conceptions of domestic and international law, and various interpretations of history in the past, present, and future. And then I talk a little bit about uh, primary sources, secondary sources. Uh, secondary sources are narratives compiled by researchers who have investigated a subject through consulting a range of primary and secondary sources. Most textbooks, for instance, can be considered secondary sources. Sometimes a secondary source will acquire the personality of a primary source over time for the light it has to shed on the intellectual quality of the temporal and geographic milieu where the text was compiled. For instance, I looked at a book published in 1936 called World Politics by uh, D-U-T-T. Um, and uh, so it, it was written, when it was written, it was a secondary source. But now when I read that book, it gives me a sense of what was going on in 1936 when it was written. 
So in a sense, it starts to become uh, a primary source. And then, of course, if you're if you're doing a um, a study of, say, an author, uh, Leonard Cohen, or I mean, anything Leonard Cohen has written is a primary source from from your point of view, uh, from one from the researcher's point of view. <coughs> Found a couple of. Uh, this is a Berkeley site. Uh, what are primary sources? So this has to do with, you know, how do we get close as possible to the truth? What is truth? Where do we find truth? Well, go to the primary sources when you can. And uh, here's a uh, discussion of type of primary sources, books, memoirs, letters, interviews, autobiographies, magazines, newspaper articles. Uh, Records and materials of published of, a, of an organization, manuscript collections, speeches. Uh, I talked already about photographs and, and uh, how important I think photographs can be as primary sources. Audio recordings, video recordings, public opinion polls, uh, periods of time. So I can go to the uh, document camera. Um, I mean, is this the primary source? Uh, here is uh, something I picked up in Sturgeon Falls, and you can see how uh, cheap it is—a dollar twenty-five. Um, and of course, uh, I can't—I don't have my monitors here, guys. Um, and it's made in China, of course. Um, Andy Warhol used to uh, have warehouses full of this kind of stuff. This is the kind of uh, ephemeral stuff that you would think is kind of garbage. But when they look back at our time, won't this be uh, telling, uh, in a sense, a, a, a source of history? Um, you know, the, the way it's packaged, uh, the, the fact that it's uh, got a you know, global distribution. Um, anyway, I, I, I looked at this and I've been sort of conjuring with it and thinking... Uh, is this the kind of primary source would, a, in a sense, an archaeologist looking back at our time, uh, where would you where would you look? I think you'd look in, uh, for sure you'd look in The Simpsons. For sure you'd look in South Park. Isn't it interesting that in a way, the truest uh, TV shows of our time seem to be disguised as kids' cartoons. Uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, in cartoons, authors are saying things that just would be too hard to take if it was done with actual live human beings acting out uh, the dramas. Uh, South Park is a very gutsy uh, show, you know, dealing with uh, some of the really deep and contentious issues of, of, of our time. Uh, the Daily Show. Uh, many uh, folks say uh, they look to The Daily Show as uh, one of the most important uh, um, indicators of what's happening. Uh, so here's a here's a, a very what are secondary sources? A secondary source is a work that imper interprets or analyzes an historical event or phenomenon. It's generally at least one step removed. Event examples include scholarly or popular books and articles, references books and textbooks. So that's something as you're doing your research, you want to be conscious of. You know, if you can if you can get primary sources or even you know see uh, perhaps unexpected things as, as primary sources. Um, 
Uh, a lot of, you know, popular culture, stuff that looks like junk that you would just throw away in uh, People magazine or whatnot. Uh, those, those could be very revealing and important primary sources uh, in, in the future, um, you know, when you, when you keep things or throw away things. And here's, uh, here's our, uh, when you keep things or throw away things, uh, think about um, keeping primary sources of our time. Here's, here's uh, the um, Canadian National Library's version of the same discussion. So, uh, pardon? Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, well. Um, all right, well, I, I, if you'd like to, I don't know, would you like to do something yourself or? Okay. Uh, well, I think that's getting fairly aggressive. I'm sorry, but I don't feel like I've learned anything yet. Well, as as it as it is, I'm responsible for being the prof. You can find it boring. You can find it irrelevant. You can find it monotonous. You can find it. Uh, those are, those are all the things within your power to do. And I'm you know obviously I would like to engage you. Um, um, and uh, I I'm doing something that I've never done before. This is an education for me. I've never surfed the web on the web. Um, and uh, this is uh, this is how I see it. This is this is, uh, and I don't feel that I'm really um, simply going over exactly what I said. Uh, I have, in my view, over over history, you know, my history of teaching. I find that uh, don't assume that you say something once and it, it comes through. Um, you can say things from different points of view, and also uh, there's some people here. You may be in fourth year. Uh, in your senior level year, uh, there may be people here who uh, grew up in another country. There may be even language issues. So, uh, to um, uh, because you're at a certain place and this seems too slow for you, uh, you, you please appreciate that I'm speaking. You know there, that there's a, a broad range of experiences and backgrounds. And for some people, this may be very familiar, and for other people. It may be uh, something that that requires to be developed. So I think at this stage, I want to have some some base, so that as we proceed, for instance, next week we'll be in a video conference. We'll be talking about gosh knows what. There'll be other people involved. When we're in video conferences, you know, it's the curriculum, and uh, so you know, I'm I'm hoping to establish a foundation that we can put things upon. But it's fair enough for you to criticize. It's fair for you to criticize in class. And I accept your criticism. And I'll try to accommodate it and, and uh, work more um, um, efficiently. But don't expect me to say, well, I totally abandon 
you know, because of your comment, I, I just now I'm going to abandon everything I was thinking about doing and 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 on the spot just just change everything. Um, so thank you for for your candor, and I know it takes some courage to to step forward and, and make a point like that. And uh, I hope that uh, as things unfold, you won't find it so elementary and so slow moving, and that we can uh, proceed. Uh, um, the uh, primary source that we did talk about, I uh, just thought I would point out that uh, I found it on the Internet. So the whole book is published on on the Internet. And uh, so I, I'll try not to uh, belabor this too much. Um, you recall that this was in the context of a, uh, of a uh, discussion of... Uh, Hawaii to Iraq, and so we went in, into some detail about how uh, the overthrow of the uh, Hawaiian queen, uh, Liliu Al-Kalani, um, uh, was treated by Stephen Kinzer as the first episode in a, in a whole series of episodes uh, of which he calls overthrow. Anyway, there, this is a... a, a, a a book review on that book. Um, obviously, it's it's a it's a biased source if you like. It's it's the socialist uh, workers' uh, paper. Uh, <clears throat> good sites on uh, the um, what happened in Guatemala. The United Fruit Company. I talked about the overthrow of uh, Iran and Mossadegh, who was attempting to nationalize uh, oil in Iran in 1953. 1954, there was the overthrow of uh, the regime of uh, Arbenz, Jacobo Arbenz, and uh, a very interesting site with uh, primary documents from the CIA about how that uh, overthrow went. Um, a second uh, site. On uh, the role of the United Fruit Company, the relationship of the, uh, of the Dulles brothers to the United Fruit Company. Uh, and, uh, of course, the uh, the connections, the links on these sites to other sites. Uh, I did talk somewhat about CIA's drug smuggling um, and how that was connected to the opium trade, how the control of illicit drugs is a big part of, of, of empire building. Um, my sense is that, uh, you know, I had this feeling that when I go to the Internet, there might be a sense that the internet is sort of ephemeral or not kind of, we do it all the time. We all know what the internet is about. Uh, my view of this, however, is that uh, there's more to this than meets the eye. Uh, how we handle the internet and how we go about surfing, uh, this isn't just a force of nature. Like I, I think to talk about it, to talk about uh, the respective merits of sites, to talk about how you do links, uh, to talk about uh, how you use Google and how um, literature is to be conceived. Uh, 
how um, truth is to be conceived in relationship to the Internet. Frankly, I don't see a lot of discussion about this. Uh, and I think it's vital. I, I advance the position that the landscape of knowledge is radically transformed by this new media, which has just appeared in our life in a, in, you know, almost instantaneously. And my sense was, that as, as I go to the net, there might be a sense that, well, we, this is kind of uh, right out there, and we, you know, we, it's not the real thing. That this is the real thing. That this is the real thing. And, you know, how we think about the relationship of websites to books, how we think about academic publication, uh, my sense is that there is just need to discuss this. And if, if, if uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your reflections on this. I'd love to hear how, other, how, you're, how you're coping with this in other courses, in other disciplines, with other professors. I mean, this strikes me as really central to talk about, and, and I, I, you know, I hear a lot of uh, comments that, well, you know, the web is kind of, for instance, it's, it's a way that students can plagiarize, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of shortcut, and I hear kind of demeaning comments about it, all of which are sometimes appropriate and true, but the other side of it is it just represents this new portal, this new window to a, a breadth of knowledge and a way to make connections. And uh, to me, this is not, this was hard one turf. This didn't just, this may seem like simple elementary, but I don't think of it how, to get to this point uh, where I'm doing what I'm doing, uh, this didn't come overnight. And uh, so um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in all kinds of discussions about how, how, to, how, to, make, how to conceive of this, this uh, new element of our, of our intellectual life, our academic life. So um, Ignatieff, uh, you know, we broke from that into the discussion of the American Empire. Um, Ignatieff, I, I quote his... Uh, uh, Excuse me if I re, re, restate it, but it strikes me this, this comment from his New York Times article. And we are, after all, talking about the person who's the front runner in the contest to, to become leader of the party in Canada that is most often government, the Liberal Party of Canada. We're talking about an academic here who is possibly on the verge of becoming the, the, the leader of Canada. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, possibly we'll be in an election very, very soon with this, with this individual. So I'm looking at uh, some uh, focus on Ignatius that we know who he is. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a very good speech here. America's empire is an, uh, an empire light. Um, but the uh, Wikipedia, for some reason this is very slow to download this uh, this site, but it's an incredible example, I think, of, uh, here we go, of uh, Wikipedia, uh, and of course Wikipedia produces these uh, very contemporary accounts of important issues. Um, so uh, biography, writings, international affairs, the lesser, lesser evil approach. His approach tends to be that of um, that of uh, 
you know, we've got to weigh different evils now that we're in this era. Uh, we, it's not always a choice between being good and being evil. Uh, missile defense, missile defense shield of North America, what a major, major subject for our country right now. His political career, which is very short, uh, his position on um, Afghanistan, his all his publications, his recent publications, and then uh, massive links to uh, different sites. This is, uh, you know, to, to my way of thinking, a, a, an extremely important resource about a person who we sh we have to think about a great deal. Uh, and the fact that he's an academic and the fact that he's uh, so prominent in human rights discussions uh, makes him extremely important. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll leave out the book review on... Okay. <clears throat> Of course, the discussion of what is truth and its relationship to the law and its relationship to court procedures, uh, this is, a, I think, a major, major topic. If, if we're going to live in a society governed by the rule of law, well, what are these agencies that are responsible for administering the rule of law? What is the court? How does the court go about determining truth from falsehood, uh, what is credible from what is not credible. And um, uh, so uh, I've put up a very, I've put up different, uh, uh, the different documents that I re referred to last week. I had them in paper. I've uh, found them now in, uh, on, on the site. This is an old version of the site. If you get a chance to uh, look at this uh, tape, it's called Above the Law Part 2. It's where I learned uh, the phrase smear and disinformation. And uh, you know, it's, it's an hour-long film. Um, and uh, most of this film is uh, this is film of a of an event during an Indian War in Canada, in Gustafson Lake, British Columbia. Uh, there was an event where the Tibetan defenders, the Shuswap, the self-declared Shuswap defenders, got into an engagement with the Canadian Army with several hundred um, RCMP agents, but it really came down in large measure to a contest for public opinion. And the, this is the behind-the-scenes discussions with the RCMP filming itself. And uh, basically they're developing the media strategy. And at some point in this film, and it's the first time I heard the phrase, It's, it's the first time I heard the phrase 
smear and disinformation. One of the police officers says, can anybody help us with our disinformation and smear campaign? And he says it as if he's, he's done a course in it, uh, that this is a very official thing, that you do disinformation and smear. And uh, um, so that uh, became a, a, a big subject of the court proceedings as they, as they unfolded. And the more, um, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fill that subject out just as I get to the end here. <clears throat> if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read the last couple of, uh, I heard references to showing Sears catalog and how, how that somehow is, uh, was found to be objectionable. Um, I've tried to uh, put this in context. And going through a brief history of my own family education and professional experience, I emphasize the time in my late teens and early 20s when I was a model and actor based in Toronto. This experience helped me to see the importance of advertising and media manipulation in the construction of capitalist society. This media manipulation can go by many names, including public relations, spin doctoring, perceptions management or propaganda. I discovered that during the Cold War, propagandists on both sides of the conflict specialized in what is sometimes referred to as disinformation and smear. Part of my expert evidence in the Pitawanaqua case was devoted to identifying the execution by the RCMP of a media campaign of disinformation and smear. The judge agreed with me that this had taken place. And if you read that article, um, that I gave at UBC in 2004. You'll get a discussion in there. This preoccupation with spin doctoring as a route to wealth and power through the domination of politics has clearly created vast difficulties for those who would devote themselves to the attempt to identify truth and disseminate truth through the media of mass communications. In the next class, I shall explore some of these tensions by exploring what has come to be known as the 9-11 Truth Movement, whose main venue is the Internet. I shall begin uh, with a book review by Ian Baruma of a new publication by Frank Rich entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Decline and Fall of Truth from 9-11 to Katrina. The book review is published in September 17, 2006. So here it is. Okay, so this is... Uh, very recent book review, the New York Times. The book we're looking at in this review is uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Decline and Fall of Truth from 9-11 to Katrina by Frank Rich, a brand new book. Frank Rich is a columnist for the New York Times. Frank Rich is a drama critic for the New York Times. So it's interesting that a drama critic would do a study of the Bush regime, and uh, and of course he is depicted here as a very much show business. Uh, politics these days is inevitably, in large measure, show business. To uh, develop your an image, to develop a, a an image around a set of policies, it's very important that uh, it be put across in a way that that is uh, capable of affecting public opinion and making an impact. Uh, 
Ian Baruma, and you'll notice in the article that I distributed that I start with uh, the author, Ian Baruma. Uh, he's a <clears throat> very interesting commentator in my, from my perspective. And uh, he talks about uh, what is fascinating about the era of George W. Bush, however, is that the spinmeisters, fake news reporters, photo op creators, disinformation experts, intelligence manipulators, fictional heroes, and public relations men posing as commentators operate in a world where virtual reality has already, already threatened to eclipse empirical investigation, where virtual reality. So I would suggest uh, that uh, this is a huge topic of major, major interest. That uh, here we have, uh, at least in the New York Times, in this book review, the argument that uh, we don't get squared with anymore in the media, that it's all about show business. It's spinmeisters, disinformation experts. And, you know, I would suggest in, in a university we need to take this seriously. In a university, the identification of truth and being able to sort out truth from falsehood, what else is there? Um, so, um, um, Baruma's book review speaks of, uh, of the gross distortion of truth by spinmeisters, fake news reporters, disinformation experts, intelligence manipulators, fictional heroes, and public relations men posing as commentators. Baruma continues, they operate in a world where virtual reality has already threatened to eclipse empirical investigation. So I ask, what responsibilities fall on us in the academy, the institution, which is theoretically at the very core of the empire of empirical investigation, to respond to this very insidious development? And uh, if you'll bear with me, I'll just go to the uh, last uh, website here. Uh, we organized a conference in Halifax on disinformation and uh, looked at uh, the role of uh, the media. Uh, here's a brief article about it. Um, and uh, as I see it, uh, disinformation, oftentimes the most cruel crimes against humanity involve journalists involve a very important element that happens in the media. If genocide is to occur, the people who are facing that possibility, if they can be dehumanized, as happened, for instance, in Nazi Germany, when Jews were dehumanized, eventually by the time the death camps, concentration camps got in gear, there was such a consensus among so many Europeans that this was actually favorable to the future of humanity, that Jews somehow be made to disappear. I mean, obviously this depended upon the media's role. Uh, the dehumanization of a group. I, I, I'm thinking in terms, of if, if we are to move towards a, the possibility someday that we will be governed by law in the world 
and not simply political expediency, one of the things that has to be done is there has to be some accountability for the crime of disinformation, for the crime of disinformation and smear. That the, uh, the guard who puts the uh, poison gas in the in the, in the, in the oven or in the, in the place where the individuals are actually in cars, are actually lethally put down. Uh, is that individual the only one responsible? What about the chain of command? What about the creation of the public opinion, the environment of public opinion that enabled this to happen? Isn't that complicity in genocide, for instance? So um, I was asked, uh, I worked on a definition, a, a juridical definition, a definition uh, that, you know, I would hope might contribute to some uh, future legal instrument. And what is disinformation? Is it just anybody who makes a mistake is doing disinformation? If you give wrong information, you're doing disinformation. I would say disinformation has to involve uh, intent. You have to know. I mean, you can be wrong, um, and there there can be no crime against being wrong. But if you're purposely uh, generating disinformation, as happened in British Columbia in 1995, and a judge, as you can read in these uh, sources in in Portland, Oregon, agreed with me that disinformation and smear did take place in Canada, and the individual involved, Pitawanaquit, was given asylum. Uh, in, in the United States uh, and was not returned to Canada uh, through this extradition process. Um, uh, so uh, this word disinformation to me is a serious word. Baruma uses it. Disinformation experts. Disinformation, I believe, was very developed in the course of the Cold War when hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars were spent by the CIA on the mass media to hire journalists to create stories to put uh, those deemed to be communists in a bad light. And oftentimes, the, the individual thus being targeted with smear and disinformation might say, I'm not a communist. I've never read Karl Marx. I don't care about communist ideology. But if that individual was proposing to take indigenous control in the Congo, for instance, Lumumba, you know, wants to take indigenous control. We should take indigenous control of our diamond, of our forest, of our hydroelectric capacity. Why should we give this power over to global corporations, to transnational corporations? Anybody who took that position was treated as equivalent to, to communists. So disinformation and I'm quoting myself here, originates in the deliberate and systemic effort to break down social cohesion and to deprive humanity of perceptive consciousness of our conditions. Disinformation seeks to isolate and divide human beings, to alienate us from our ability to use our senses, our intellect, and our communicative powers in order to identify truth and act on this knowledge. Disinformation is deeply implicated in the history of imperialism, Eurocentric racism, American Manifest Destiny, Nazi propaganda, and the psychological warfare of the Cold War and capitalist globalization. Disinformation seeks to erode and destroy the basis of individual and collective memory, the basis of those inheritances from history 
which give humanity our richness of diverse languages, cultures, nationalities, peoples, and means of self-determination. How can you perpetuate your distinct identity, your distinct culture, unless you can tell the story of your history as you see it? And uh, in capitalist life, I mean, this, this is an impediment to the free movement of capital. All of this history can, can, can be perceived as a, uh, as a negative force. Um, and yet, how do we re maintain our distinct sense of identities without being able to pass on this history? The reach and intensity of disinformation tends to increase with the concentration of ownership and control of the media of mass communications. And uh, so here's an effort to... So we talked about some kind of center to study this. Uh, Hall envisioned a center to inform the public of disinformation's, disinformation's crucial role in the deterioration of democracy and in the further empowerment of repressive regimes of public and private power everywhere. The aim would be to engage people and peoples in the struggle to expose the lies of disinformation and to join in the articulation of a new era of enlightenment based on the vigorous exploration embrace and deployment of truth. The aim would be to hold the perpetrators of disinformation and war propaganda legally and morally accountable for their uh, violation of the public trust. It would, it would be to hold the perpetrators and disseminators of disinformation accountable for the central role in crimes against individuals, groups, and humanity, and against the ecology of a sustainable and healthy life on the planet. The aim is to encourage and facilitate the study of disinformation and propaganda through conferences, publications, web access, activism, networking, and constructive engagement with legislatures, parliaments, peoples, assemblies, coalitions, unions, medias, court, and corporate officials. So um, I'll take a break, and we really will go to the 9-11 Truth Movement after the break. 9-11 Films. Let's uh, look at the Pentagon strike. Let's look at it. We can choose our languages. Let's look at it in English.
Where's the plane? Okay. Let's go to this hot link here. Now, <clears throat> happen to notice this uh, photograph. If we can go to the document camera. Um, <clears throat> so there it is from the uh, sky. And I think it's legitimate to ask, where is the 757? Uh, and uh, that shot with the impact, I kept going over it with uh, Brian Lechmising, who um, works on the website with me. And uh, you know, you slow it down, you, you you play it frame by frame by frame, and where's the 757? Uh, you can see something come in the frame, and it, it's it's one of those things where you say, well, do I trust my eyes? I mean, do I trust my own senses? Do I trust my perception? Uh, 
Um, so um, it, it just goes on and on and on and on. Of course, uh, this is one of the early texts about it. Uh, he comes up often in this uh, in this uh, day Ray, uh, day, David Ray Griffin, who calls himself a uh, a uh, theologist. Anyway, he just goes through, for instance the uh, scrambling mechanisms that are supposed to take place when a plane goes off course. There are, uh, there are procedures in place to scramble fighter planes. What happened? Uh, then he goes through you know, the Twin Towers, and um, there's never been a, a recorded episode of uh, that type of fire creating the base for a building to collapse. One of the really tough ones is the uh, third tower. There's a third tower that goes through, and, and, and you, you see it all over the net, the, the picture of the third tower uh, falling down. The third tower, nobody says it was hit by a plane. Uh, the third tower had um, many sort of secret sites, CIA headquarters. Giuliani had some kind of command post. Uh, it looks exactly like um, a building would look if it was uh, detonated um, from from within. 